Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. Good morning, and welcome to Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. On this morning's show, New York City, as seen through the eyes of writer Ian Frazier. Frazier has written about the people, history, and streets of New York for some 30 years for The New Yorker and other publications. He joins us this morning to talk about his book, Gone to New York, Adventures in the City, which is now out in paperback from Picador. Ian, thanks for coming in. Oh, I'm happy to be here. The book includes a collection of your essays about New York, the people, the history, the streets. How has it been received outside of New York since it's been published? Uh, well, people say they don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, they say, well, I'm not that knowledgeable about New York or I'm not that into New York. I mean, or they'll say, I just, I've just i never been there. Uh, so uh, I think it probably is uh, of local interest. I mean, I would like everything I write to be of more than local interest. When you sit down at the keyboard, though, are you thinking national audience or are you just thinking New York and it's, these are my views? Well, I use a manual typewriter. So, Still? Uh, yeah. So I don't sit down at a keyboard necessarily. And what I think about is I want to think of a of an ideal reader and... I think of somebody who just walks into a library in Lincoln, Nebraska, and is a curious person, maybe uh, in high school or college. I mean, I try and imagine myself as a as a reader when I was before I came to New York, when I was living in Ohio, and um, I would read books where I would have no idea what people were talking about. Sometimes, you know. Uh, I remember reading Susan Sontag essays when I was in college or in high school and thinking they were amazing and really having no clue. I mean, even today, I read things about her when she died. I read things about her and I had no idea what was, I mean, you know, I got the idea of camp, for example. I thought that was an incredible concept when I was 16. But I grasped only a little bit of it. And yet it's almost like you're listening to music you don't know where it comes from or what it means or anything, but you just, it's almost like the way an animal listens, like a dog listens to the tone of the master, you know, like the, or the tone of the owner. The dog doesn't know the words, but you get the tone. And I always hope that if somebody picks up my book in those circumstances, that, that it would still be interesting or still be fun. You know, I like when I first watched Monty Python or heard Monty Python records, I didn't know any of their references, really. You know, they had a summarized Proust contest. I only sort of vaguely knew. I knew who Proust was, but, you know, and yet there was something about the whole thing that just appealed to me, even though I didn't understand it. For instance, when you write about Canal Street, someone who's never walked Canal Street can't really hear Dala, but a New Yorker <laughs> or anyone who's visited Canal Street can hear Dala. Yeah, yeah, that's... That's the kind of thing that, if you have heard it yourself, it's it should be quite vivid to you, you know. Uh, and if you haven't, maybe uh, with time it will become that. But 
But you always try and put in something that if the person knows exactly what you're talking about, you will be exactly on it, you know, that you won't get it wrong. You define dollar. It's different than dollar. Right. A dollar is an actual physical object. It's uh, a soiled dollar bill with maybe some writing on it or, or uh, a little bit of duck sauce or, or maybe even blood. And it's quite different from a dollar, which is just a theoretical concept on a computer screen in many cases. A dollar is real. Let me get back to this manual typewriter thing for a moment. Surprising to hear that you're still typing on a manual typewriter in today's day and age. Uh, yeah, I just, I always thought they were, uh, typewriters were so amazing when I was a child. My father was a communi- communications officer in the Navy during World War II, and he had a lot of typewritten documents that he had brought from the war, and he had a couple typewriters, and just just even if you remember the smell of a uh, a typewriter ribbon, you know, that kind of, it, it's hard to define almost what it is, but there was such mystery and, and uh, kind of wartime aura around a manual typewriter for me. And it always seemed just such like such a cool object. So I still use uh, a manual, and there are still people who repair manuals. When they go over the horizon, which I suppose they have to eventually, uh, I will switch. But so far, I have I've found good people to fix my manual when it breaks. So it's been in that in that sense, it's been really uh, it's been an interesting thing to stay with it. You write about one of them in one of your essays, yeah. Martin Titel. Martin Titel. Martin Titel is he retired not long after I wrote the profile of him, which appeared in the Atlantic Monthly. But he was the typewriter repairman extraordinaire. And, uh, well, for example, he had a guy working for him who had fixed uh, fixed typewriters, I think, at Auschwitz. He was a prisoner. And because he could fix typewriters, he was spared. And the Germans brought him captured Russian typewriters from the Eastern Front and had him change the Cyrillic to a German uh, typeface. And when the camp was captured, they kept the guy so that he could change the typewriters back <laughs> to to uh, Cyrillic again. And this was this extraordinary uh, technician with, with all kinds of typewriters. Actually, he wasn't working there by the time I wrote the profile. But, but Martin Titel just encompassed the history of this amazing invention. You know, that was only, what is it? It was only 120-some years old. It's not a very old invention in the history of technology uh, in the sense that uh, it's totally manual. And there's no, uh, the, he, he dealt mostly in manuals, although he fixed electrics too. But he just, Martin Titel was, was sort of history in one man, a, a long period of history, and he had all kinds of typewriters. He was a fascinating guy. The people that you write about can almost seem fictitious. Like you're making them up, like Gary, your former landlord. Oh, well, Gary's, <laughs> he's not fictitious. But yeah, I know. I, I mean, I think New York specializes in fictitious people or fictitious seeming people because it's a place where people invent themselves, where people come up with personalities that they didn't have before. I mean, Gary is an example. Gary's name was Zvi. He was Romanian. And he just 
changed his name when he came to America. Why Gary? I don't know. I guess it sounded American to him. When I asked him, I said, how come your name was Gary? He said, oh, a chick gave it to me. (laughs) He was sort of like, uh, he had a kind of Eastern European hipness. Uh, That was really charming. But he uh, um, was a self-invented person. Many of the people I write about are. Martin Titel is another example. He had changed his name just to have it be more euphonious with the idea of Titel typewriter repair, the name of his shop. Uh, But you find that a lot in profiles of New Yorkers. A lot of, uh, if you read Joseph Mitchell, for example, a lot of the characters he writes about, you think, are these people really out there walking around talking like this? It sounds as if a writer invented them. And in a sense, a writer did. But the invention might have consisted of nothing more than listening to the person. How old were you when you first came to New York City? Uh, I came to New York City. I had just turned 23. You hitchhiked here. I hitchhiked here from Hudson, Ohio, where I grew up. Uh, I had been in the East before. I had gone to college in Cambridge. I went to Harvard, and I came down here and tried to get a job right after college. Do you think that you reinvented yourself when you came to New York City? Well, I had a period where I was quite different than I had been in Ohio. I had a fake accent. You know, I wanted to seem really down home, like uh, uh, some kind of rural character, you know, that was, uh, I don't know, maybe had a a little aura of Huckleberry Finn or maybe Pap Finn. Come on, resurrect that (laughs) accent. Well, it was was just, I I can't even really remember it. It was just kind of, uh, well, are we going to have meat and taters? And I was saying stuff like that and... Uh, or Warsh. I insisted on saying Warsh instead of Wash. I actually started that back in Hudson because my mother, who was an English teacher, loathed that pronunciation of Wash. But it's a West Virginia pronunciation, and you do hear it a fair amount in Ohio. You know, well, time to Wash up. And then there were a lot of other pronunciations like that. Instead of Wolf, Woof. Instead of Creek, Crick. Uh, instead of Roof, Ruff. Uh, strength instead of strength, uh, particular instead of particular. Um, there were just a lot of kind of rural pronunciations that I would try. And then people from Ohio, my friends from growing up would come to visit me and they would say, what, what has happened to your accent? What, how, why are you talking like that? But I wanted to seem more authentic. You know, I didn't want people to say, oh, this is just a kid from the suburbs, either dime a dozen. I wanted it to look as if I was John Boy Walton or something strolling out of the hills. I don't know why, but that was the tack I took when I first came. Your experiences in your apartment on Canal Street, I'm sure, are experiences that many people can relate to. I can still today in my apartment because I hear my neighbors all the time. Mm-hmm. You say that you heard the upstairs neighbor's cat jump off the countertop. Right. Well, there was only one board between my, I mean, my ceiling was his floor and it was only one board thick. And it was, uh, we knew each other very well through that. I mean, there were holes which I should have repaired, but somehow didn't. And when this neighbor would have fights with his girlfriend and they would throw crockery sometimes at each other, fragments of crockery would come through the ceiling. You also had this incredible encounter when his phone wouldn't stop ringing, right. and you found this a great This was back way. when your phone could ring forever. Now I think they make it stop after 20 rings. But his phone rang and rang and rang and rang, and I took a very long piece of copper pipe 
that I had in my apartment, and I pushed it through a hole in the floor, and I could just through that hole in the floor, just by chance, I could see the phone. It was a wall phone. And I lined this long piece of copper pipe up just like it was a pool shot, and I knocked the phone off the hook from the floor below through through uh, through his floor and and he that he was pleased by that actually when he came home he thought that was pretty funny he wrote me a note about it but but uh i actually i now live in new jersey and uh i'm glad that you know i think you can live like that for a while but then you get you get a little tired and you want to be able to sleep at night you don't want to be waked up you know middle of the night by a, a extremely loud billy joel song You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. We're joined this morning by writer Ian Frazier. His essays about New York have graced the pages of The New Yorker and other publications for some 30 years. A number of his essays are compiled in a book called Gone to New York, Adventures in the City. It's now out in paperback from Picador. How different is it living in New Jersey for you, and do you miss the city? I miss the city a lot. I don't. I I like New Jersey too. I really. I first was a very typical snooty Manhattanite about New Jersey, but I now I I really love it, and uh, I think it is a great state. Um, it's uh, not as much fun to walk, unfortunately. It's it's tougher to walk. I could walk in Brooklyn, and just it was just like. <laughs> forever, you know. I could walk all the way out to the Verrazano Narrows Bridge from my house in Park Slope when we lived in Brooklyn and just be gone all day, you know, go through 20 different neighborhoods, it seemed like, you know, go through uh, just even kind of varying geography, you know. I mean, that that island is so wonderful, Long Island. And I read in biographies about, you know, Walt Whitman once walked from Brooklyn to the end of Long Island. Now, what is that? A hundred and I forget how many, but it's over a hundred miles for sure. Would that be your advice to new riders coming to New York? Get a good pair of shoes and walk. I think it is excellent advice. Yeah, and and that New York is a place where you can walk. I mean, I have tried to walk in other cities, and New York is old enough that it its byways, the way that people get around here are more based on uh, carriage paths and footpaths than they are just, you know, like L.A. where you're, this was just put in by a bulldozer. A person never walked here. You know, this this street is just, you know, uh, you can walk there too, but I, I find New York ideal for walking. You know, I walked all over Brooklyn, all over Queens, uh, and uh, I have in Jersey, I've walked from my house to uh which is about 14 miles west of the city i've walked from my house to uh manhattan via the ferry of course um on route three you write about that and that's also in this book walking on route three which is uh not designed for walking and that i do miss in new jersey new jersey is less designed although you know 
if you if you pursue it, you find paths, even places where you think there aren't paths, because everybody does walk. You know, there are a lot of people out there walking still. Are you finding yourself inspired by things in New Jersey to write about? Yeah, I am. I mean, I uh, uh, I love the uh, uh, the combination of I love in general the combination of wild nature and intense or uh, urban settings. And New Jersey is very densely populated. It's the most densely populated part of America. And yet it has real wild nature that's quite accessible, you know. Uh, one story I've, I've told a, a few times, but it really moved me. I was in the Meadowlands. I go down there sometimes to do drawings of the power lines because there's so many weird power lines down there. And I was walking along a canal, and it was right next to uh, to a big road and there was a lot of junk thrown in the canal trash and stuff and i heard a huge splash and i looked down and there was a snapping turtle that was bigger around than a manhole cover it was a big snapping turtle the head looked like the head of a missile and it's swimming around through the the algae and duck grass on the surface and i thought what was the splash though why was there a splash and i looked someone had thrown a couch into the canal and the turtle had been sitting on the couch <laughs> so what the turtle had done was jump off the couch into the canal so here you're driving in new jersey and 20 feet away unbeknownst to you a large snapping turtle is sitting on the couch i i just you know and you have to wonder what might be under that couch too well i mean something is something's keeping it afloat probably uh, corpse of some kind but and it happens to be across the street from a business called Goldie's Kosher Truck Parts it sells truck parts and it's kosher it's it's kosher i mean have uh, you written about that no i haven't but i went in and talked to the guy and he said yeah he is kosher that he has a rabbi comes in and makes sure that the truck parts are not made by slave labor there's all this stuff to be kosher not just dietary but there's a whole um a bunch of qualifications that you have to meet. So it's a kosher <laughs> place that sells truck parts. He says he doesn't get very many Jewish customers, though, because there aren't that many Jewish truck drivers. But uh, but it is a, a really cool little part of Jersey. I, I love exploring around there. This book, Gone to New York, includes many different stories of New York City. As we mentioned, Canal Street, the F train. There was a crab on the F train at one time <laughs> that you spotted. Yeah. Yeah, the the F train was the train that ran by my house in uh, Brooklyn. And the F train, as New Yorkers will know, ends at Coney Island. That may explain the presence one day when I got in the F train. There weren't very many people there. It may explain the presence of a crab. And there was a crab walking around on the F train. And uh, at the time, my daughter was watching the little, the little Mermaid a lot. And there's a character in there, Sebastian the Crab. And that crab moves with this kind of fingernail, scritchy sound on, on, you know, when he moves around. And that was the sound of this crab kind of. And it was going sideways and kind of trying to find a place to hide and stuff. And everybody that got on would look at it and... My gosh, there's a crab, and uh, it was just it was just a really uh, unexpected thing to see on the subway. Uh, and uh, finally, a guy um, 
uh, opened a manila envelope that he had and just reached down and scooped the crab into the manila envelope and then, you know, sealed it up with those little metal tabs and put it under his coat and left. Uh, I don't know how to explain this, but it happened. It's New York. (laughs) Many of the stories in your book are funny, just like that one, but some of them are more touching, more serious, like to Mr. Winslow about a drama teacher killed in Brooklyn's Prospect Park. Yeah, that was was a very sad uh, event. Uh, This guy was killed, uh, I think it was a robbery for his bicycle. Uh, Anyway, he was shot uh, by kids. They were... uh, I don't think they were much over 16 or 17, and and uh, it was at a part in Prospect Park in Brooklyn where I used to go with my daughter, and it was just astonishing. Suddenly, there was this memorial, uh, a makeshift, spontaneous, sort of like the memorials that later uh, appeared for the World Trade Center victims, but there's, suddenly there was this memorial, and I just cataloged what happened with this little memorial in the course of, I guess, a year or a year and a half that it was there. Uh, But uh, a lot of places where you go in New York, so much has happened there, and you wonder how can that much happen in one place and not change the place or not, uh, or even be totally invisible later, you know, that this was a place where enormous, enormous change happened right here, you know, to somebody uh, and... uh, uh, and then it just becomes its sort of neutral self again. And it, it seems like that's impossible. But New York is a place not just of going, you know, not just of collisions and, and meetings, but also a place of forgetting, you know. You you come together and then you disperse. And uh, people come to New York in order to forget who they were sometimes, in order to reinvent themselves. Are you hoping to preserve incidents like that by writing about them? Well, you always want to stop time. You always think this is so important. The death of this guy is so sad and wrong. And sad, uh, I mean, it, also for the kids that shot him. I mean, what a what a waste of everybody. And you want to, almost like you could put it on a microscope slide and say, this is it. This is... I've I've isolated the virus, you know. I've isolated the the what what's causing the problem. I mean, it's almost it's I guess an American urge to better things, to 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 stop disintegration in its tracks sometimes. But you can't, you know. You you try and preserve the moment, but but then you know you also some you know it, then it just flows on by. What prompted you to write about the inscriptions on desks at a Columbia University <laughs> library? I just would look at them and I found them so uh they were so funny and they, and they were so uh the desks were so old that in places the ink had worn out but uh you could still see the incision that the pen had made in the in the wood and very old things like impeach Nixon and the ink had all worn out. But a long time ago, somebody had really carved that deeply or banned the bomb. You know, back when the peace sign meant ban the bomb, which was, gosh, it's been 40, 50 years anyway. You know, you're talking half a century. And then other inscriptions that were quite recent and the longing in them. And one of them was something to the effect of, 
when uh, when Kara, the name C A R A, a woman's name, uh, when Kara, and then the la- the initial was either G or B or something like that. When she walks through these aisles, I it's just and this guy was writing this romantic how just watching this woman walk by in the library it just stunned him and astonished him because she was so beautiful. And later, I got a postcard from that woman. Did you really? Yes. She said, I think that was me. And uh, she said, what was the full name? And now I don't even remember because I had just used an initial. But then I wrote her back and I told her what the full name was. And it was her name. Uh, and she just and she was just sort of, wow, I didn't know I was on a desk in the library. But there's so much uh, conversation going on there. And colleges now are just fraught with all kinds of controversy, as they have probably always been. But, you know, you see, you know, ethnic battles being waged and political battles and all in the writing in the Butler Library desks. Many people, especially those outside of the city, think of the city as just Manhattan. And I guess that's not too surprising. But even some New Yorkers don't have a full view of the city. And you explain that in your essay, Someplace in Queens. Right. When people talk about Queens, they say, oh, yeah, his his ex-wife lives in Queens someplace. Or, you know, oh, they keep all the records someplace in Queens. And I love that someplace in Queens. And I think that's what I called the essay because... It just gives you an idea of New York as unlimited. Someplace, who knows? Someplace. It goes on and on and on. And in fact, Queens does go on and on if you if you walk in it. Uh, in I love it. the fact that you describe Queens as being shaped like something like a brain. Right. It it does. It has that uh, that configuration sort of. Although uh, parts of it don't quite fit the analogy, but uh, it, it is. It's it's. Uh, it could be drawn, I suppose, as a brain, and and it's the most I've I read at the time that I did this, and I imagine it's still true. It's the most ethnically diverse place on earth. Uh, the most languages, the most uh, different places of origin for its citizens, and uh, pretty amazing to think that 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 America produced that, and that it produced it with as little trauma, I mean, though trauma there was, when you think of all the trauma that the world's peoples have inflicted on each other, that you have all of these different people here. And, uh, um, I mean, I think it's a sort of miraculous thing. In addition to just simply being entertained by your essays, you can also learn something about city history. I learned a lot about the Holland Tunnel. Did you <laughs> yeah. set out to educate people? I mean, do you sometimes set out to educate? I'm going to, you know, set this out there and let people learn a little something. Well, I had with that a bit of a feeling of an injustice had been done because Clifford Holland, who designed and oversaw the engineer who designed the tunnel and who oversaw its construction, is forgotten. And it cost him his life, and not just his, but a number of other people that worked on that tunnel. That was the first uh, Hudson River vehicular tunnel, and it was a real achievement for its time. And he, uh, just through a quirk of history, because the Dutch originally founded uh, New York, people assume that it has to do with Holland, the country. And they don't realize it's a man and this man was a great man, in my opinion. So I had a, uh, a little bit of a sense of 
crusading. You know, I wanted to put Clifford Holland back in people's minds. And there is a statue of him at the entrance to the tunnel, but it is the most unobtrusive statue, and it's quite easy to miss. And I think at the moment it might even not be there anymore. It might be uh, taken off its little pedestal. It's set in a niche right as you go in uh, from uh, Canal Street. But I just wanted... As I read about his life, I found it very touching. You clearly have a love of New York. You write about New York. You've written about New York for more than 30 years, but you write about other things, too. And what is your favorite? You've written about fishing. You've written about living with American Indians. Do you have a favorite thing to write about? I I don't, and uh, I don't know why. I have a number of things I really love, and they pull me in weird directions. What are you writing about now? Well, right now I'm doing a book about Siberia. I've been traveling in Siberia for really going back to 93. I made my first trip. So I'm writing a book which I expect will be a pretty sizable book on this rather huge subject. I love Russia. I don't know why. I love the American West. And uh, and I love New York also. New York is a place that is, in a sense, every place. So much is here and so much comes here that you can be here and not feel overwhelming longing for something that is just plain not represented here. If I feel horrible longing for the West, for example, I go to the Museum of Natural History and I look at the paintings behind the buffalo exhibit, the grizzly bear exhibit, uh, and I see the West and I sort of daydream off into that area. But New York is a place that's every place, and so I suppose that's how I end up in this area. Now out in paperback is Gone to New York, Adventures in the City. Ian Frazier, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Ian Frazier's book, Gone to New York, Adventures in the City, is now out in paperback from Picador. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Jody Abergan. Have a great weekend. Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. The New York City Police Museum features an old-time jail cell, turn-of-the-century mugshots, and more. It's just one of the 15 unique museums of Lower Manhattan. More information at museumsoflowermanhattan.org.